Hello, welcome to this special Christmas edition of the Theology Podcast. We're glad to have you here. We believe that this show will be posting Christmas Day. So that's why uh, this is a Christmas-themed podcast. Anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor, and I'm in the Pacific Northwest right now, but I will soon be traveling to Connecticut to spend a few weeks there on vacation so I can see my kids and grandkids and all that. And anyway, uh, that's enough about me. Uh, How about you, Tom? I'm Tom Price. I'm on the East Coast in the North, where partially where Chris will be visiting his family (laughs) (laughs) and where Glenn used to live. (laughs) Um, I teach uh, theology, uh, ethics, and philosophy in one of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Super duper. Okay, Glenn, why don't you introduce yourself and then tell us what we're talking about today. Yes, I'm Glenn Sunshine. Uh, I am a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries. I run a 501c3 called Every Square Inch Ministries. I do freelance teaching, writing, all kinds of stuff. And um, it being, well, the podcast is scheduled to be released on Christmas, so I thought it would be a good time to talk about Christmas. All right. And the focal point for me is going to be a series of sermons written by uh, St. Augustine of Hippo on Christmas. And in particular, th- there are several themes that he plays with. If you read through all his sermons, and I will link to them, um, he keeps coming back to certain themes in them. But the one I want to focus on is the one, that we'll probably touch on some of the others, but it's the one that I am most interested in. And that's the idea of paradox, that when we look at what happened in the incarnation, it contains in itself a series of rather impressive paradoxes that I don't think we often really pay attention to uh, as we are considering what the incarnation means. So I will, uh, I'll pick up with one of them. This is from Sermon uh, 190, and he's got several uh, several lists of these paradoxes. But uh, this one, I think, is is a um, a good example of this. Um, he lies in a manger, but he holds the whole world in his hands. He sucks his mother's breast, but feeds the angels. He is swaddled in la- rags, but clothes us in immortality. He is suckled, but also worshipped. He could find no room in the end, but makes a temple for himself in the hearts of believers. It was in order, you see, that weakness might become strong, that strength become weak. Let us therefore rather wonder at him, make light of his birth in the flesh, and there recognize the loneliness on our behalf of such loftiness. For there let us kindle charity in ourselves in order to attain to his eternity." There are so many images that he stacks oh, yeah. one on top of the other there right. um, that that show this sort of contrast between what happens when the Son of God becomes human, takes on flesh. Um, and actually, Augustine would object to the idea of becomes human. Uh, he would prefer this idea of taking on flesh because, as he points out, in becoming Uh, in becoming flesh and taking on flesh and becoming fully human, he doesn't lose anything that he already was. 
Yeah. Uh, he remains God. He remains the second person of the Trinity. He remains the one who upholds uh, all the universe by his word of power and all of that. But at the same time, he is also fully human and as a human is located in a manger in Bethlehem at the incarnation. Right. Yeah, marvelous stuff. Um, one of the things that's being played with, of course, is our propensity to look at kind of greatness in a certain way um, as, you know, strength and, um, you know, size and self-sufficiency and, and so forth. And at one and the same moment, we have a, a God who is um, sort of filling the full span, you know, from the bottom to the top, weakness to strength, simultaneously. That's where the paradox is, is that both are true at the same moment. Yeah. I, I was going to add with that is that there's definitely with Augustine an interest in manifesting what is unique about Christian views of omnipotence. And when you're dealing with that point, you have the fact that the Christian God is so strong that this God can become so weak and not lose anything of that strength, and that there is a way in which this God is able almost to subvert the whole of worldly power wrongly constituted by becoming this one in a manger, fragile, contingent, dependent. Um, and yeah, you look at, for example, the beginning of any of the Gospels, or especially like Luke's Gospel, and you have typical of that age, the first emphasis is this is taking place when this particular ruler was in charge, right? And uh, But the flip of it is is eventually, but look look at the focal point. It's a baby in a manger, actually the one who is going to replace the kings of this earth. And and so there is this, this deep irony going on right there in Scripture. And Augustine, being who he is and dealing with what he was dealing with, he was very attuned to that. I saw a meme the other day that said that the person who best understood the meaning of the incarnation was Herod. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, another quote that uh, this is from the next sermon, Sermon 191, that I think actually put something of an exclamation point on this. Um, the maker of man, he was man, so that the director of the stars might be a babe at the breast, that bread might be hungry, and the fountain thirsty, and the light might sleep, and the way be weary from a journey, that the truth might be accused by false witnesses, and the judge of the living and the dead be judged by mortal judge, that justice might be convicted by the unjust, and discipline be scourged with whips, that the cluster of grapes might be crowned with thorns and the foundation be hung up on a tree, that strength might grow weak, eternal health might be wounded, life might die. <laughs> um, you know, Augustine, before he converted, was a teacher of rhetoric um, and an expert rhetorician, and I think you see that coming out here. Um, but... I wonder how often people actually, you know, we're so used to this baby at a manger in Bethlehem and all of that and Silent Night and it's uh, all is calm and all is bright and all of that sort of thing. I wonder how often people today actually think about how 
utterly strange, um, wonderful in the sense of a true wonder that the incarnation actually is. When you take a look at all of the things that are true of Jesus, all the things that are said of Jesus, you know, he says, I am the bread of life, but bread becomes hungry then, you know, as Augustine points out, all of these things. I don't think we typically take the time to actually appreciate all that is going on there. Well, I think, you know, your, your comment, Glenn, about um, people taking this for granted uh, has definitely been so. I, I, I Maybe it's because we have such a low regard for the majestic in our society today. Um, yeah, I think about Ricky Bobby and Talladega Nights and praying to the baby Jesus, you know, that, yes. that ridiculous statement, everybody knows it's ridiculous. And yet at the same time that he actually is expressing a sentiment that many people actually, uh, you know, express in other ways quite seriously. And that is they, 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 they miss, uh, the point, you know, there's just kind of the sentimentality, the sentimentalism that we associate with the manger and, you know, the tenderness of the mother and the baby. And, there's really not a any sort of a, well awe at this being uh, what we're talking about a paradox. Yeah, I think I think the theology that is manifest in the teaching of the incarnation is so profound. I mean, think of just how much the early church wrestled through the lineaments of the differing aspects of it and why they clearly understood that what we have going on here and what is manifest in Christ and the salvation that he offers found in no other name is so profound that the categories of power, the, the categories of glory, the categories of humanity and deity all had to be reimagined and re-envisioned with new things in place that had been revealed. And, and that profundity so captured the imagination of the early church and, and theologians that they understood, how, you know, life or death mattered with getting this right. I mean, you eclipse the glory that is manifest in this one if you make him just one more creature, just the top of the chain. If you make him, you know, the firstborn of all creation, but not the creator itself. And Augustine was very attuned to that, that what, you what you're dealing with here is unmatched and unequal. And the profundity of this creator being able to come this close to creation, dignifying this creation, which other philosophies tended to either denigrate or indulge, and dignify it in a way that it can become the basis of a new life and a new fashion of life that actually can live for the eternal, uh, have the eternal present to it, be shaped by it, and yet still remain embodied and moving towards its, its recreation. And this is found nowhere. Even the Neoplatonism that Augustine was attracted to early it talked about kind of, you know, transcending the material for the immaterial, but it didn't talk about this in a way in which the material, um, which was dignified in Christ being creator and uh, taking on flesh, um, you know, he, 
he wanted to do justice to that. And he spent a lot of time, I think all of those sermons, actually all the, all the August, the sermons on Christmas address something of that issue. Yeah. You know, one of the things that this makes me think of is, you know, in the early church, this is something that is actually very relevant when you're dealing with um, uh, the new atheists today who are really a spent force, but some of the rhetoric still shows up. Um, you know, they, they would say things like, you know, you don't believe in Zeus, you don't believe in Thor or Odin, um, we just believe in one fewer god than you do. <laughs> you know, that argument that, that they make. But what they're missing is something that one of the church fathers, I forgot who it was, pointed out. When a polytheist says the word God, they don't mean the same thing that we mean when we say God. You know, a polytheistic gods are, are limited you know, they're limited in many ways. They're not omnipotent. They're not omnipresent. They're not omniscient. You know, none of these things that are attributes of a monotheistic God are true of any of the polytheistic gods. So you're really making a category error when you confuse the two. Now, the reason why that's important is when we look at the incarnation, when people are talking about, you know, these myths of heroes who are born of gods, you know, Hercules was the son of Zeus or whatever. Um, it's a category error because the incarnation is not of that sort. Um, and, you know, it, because God is not the same kind of God that they are, the sons of the gods are not the same kind of son of God that Jesus is. You know, in a surprising place where this distinction occurs is in Rick Riordian's uh, Percy Jackson series. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, oh, but it's oh yeah, it's a it's a fun it's a fun series, very lighthearted, very much kind of Harry Potter esque. Uh, but uh, in I think the very first book in the introduction, he ad he addresses this very theme, and and he talks about God versus these gods, and he and he makes the very distinction that uh, you just made, Glenn, which is to give him credit. Uh, I think something uh, that maybe people who uh, are into the new atheism maybe would benefit from actually reading <laughs> Percy Jackson. <laughs> yeah, yeah I didn't remember he made that comment. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, it's you know it it it's also one of the things. I mean, the the gods, or even the you know the god of some kinds of of monotheisms are basically things that that may or may not exist. They're those types of things. Um, but the issue there is the question of does it have existence? You know, does it does it partake of that which exists or not? The Christian God isn't even in that category because it it's it understands being itself, existence itself as the very nature of God. So if anything is, it has to be given a creaturely share in that which God is by nature. What God is by nature, everything else has by grace. So even the gods, if they exist, would need the God. Um, right. To supply them with existence because they aren't they aren't self existent ones, um, and if anything exists at all, then something must be existence itself in order to be the source and end of all that. It's it's that easy, way down the line of Christianity. But early on, before that was articulated, the church did a lot of hard work to make that distinction. Which which I I recently found out the very word. Kabod in the in the Old Testament, glory, 
um, has bound up with it the notion of distinction. Um, and, and I always understood, you know, from, you know, the weight of glory and all these different aspects, but I didn't realize the distinction. So that which distinguishes God in his glory, right, is part of what is is manifest and revealed and part of who he is. And that I think they, they don't get. They, they don't have an antenna for that key distinction that is at the heart of the Christian view of God and all else. And if I understand the Eastern view, uh, uh, way of thinking about this, um, meaning the Eastern Church, uh, there's a distinction between God's glory and God's essence, mm-hmm. and that we apprehend God's glory, but we could never apprehend God's essence. Yeah, the energy, the energia, mm-hmm. and the uh, essentia. That yeah, so God's essence is you know they are different. There are two different you know there are more, but there are two different ways of talking about it that become schools of thinking in, in Christianity. One is the, the Eastern line, which will, will you'll, also, you'll also hear them use stuff like being beyond being, right? That language yeah. is like, what, what right. do they mean by that? They're trying to use language to talk about the way that God's reality as the source of everything, isn't one more being in the chain. God is right. the being beyond being. You know, they'll often often t- talk of the, you know, the unknowability. Um, right. But connected to that knowability is the glory, um, the energies, the, the, that which, you know, that radiates from that essence. And that is something that the creatures, when, they're, when you talk about our being, you know, theosis, our being partakers of the divine nature, we can never be partakers of right. the essence of God, but we right. can of the energia, right? Those, right? those deifying energies that transform our creatureliness to be able to have communicated to it things like eternal life. So, you know, connected to this, uh, when we think about the incarnation, we think of condescension. Um, there is a sense in which even the most vulnerable and frail thing in the world, because it has existence, uh, is something that depends directly upon God all the time. And this is what Augustine is getting at in his references to, you know, the, where this paradox is, is being, you know, noted. So it's not as though God is like um, humiliated uh, in so far as, you know, he's a baby or he's, you know, he's taken on human flesh and, and that flesh mm-hmm is uh infant infantile <laughs> you know it's not as though the the scales uh that apply to us apply to him because everything on the scale ultimately depends on him uh in every in in, in the fullest way you know imaginable so uh, even when we think about you know this term to condescend uh just you know it, i think even if even if God had taken on, well, Aslan, for example, you know, you think about Aslan in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, and you know, his he's an analog to Jesus, you know, and and so uh, you know, we're impressed by lions, but is the is the ontological distance between a lion and an and an infant uh, s- significant at all uh, <laughs> from the perspective of the divine? There's, there's there's no there's no I think measurable significance yeah. in terms of difference you know yeah, both yeah. are you know huge yeah the interesting thing about that is martin luther commenting on the incarnation says you know jesus could have been born in a palace mm-hmm. you know he could have been born in this this spectacular place but 
that wouldn't have done me any good. <laughs> the fact that he was born in a poor village, you know, in, you know, in, well, in, in Martin's understanding of these things in a stable, um, that brought Jesus to a level that he could relate to, that he could understand. And thus, it was more, it was more beneficial to him in that sense. And I think he would also make the point that, you know, coming down from glory, there's, there's nothing on earth. Uh, I mean, the distance between the stable and the palace is nothing compared to the distance from glory to the, to the earth. Uh, Bernard Clairvaux actually says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem because there's one commodity that is absent from heaven that we have in abundance on earth, and that is poverty. Oh, interesting. <laughs> that's a that's a marvelous statement. Well, and he reaches into the depths, if you will. I mean, this is what you have is is a God who hasn't abandoned the creation. And and so it speaks of such a prof I, I think in this way of condescending, a profound love for that which God doesn't have to love in its rebellion against him. Right. And and yet is not matched with a necessary immediate love back from where he ends up. I mean, he comes into his own, in his own don't re receive him, right? And these are a people that should have, who have suffered, who have usually been on the margins, right? Um, you know, the, the people that tended to forget, you know, f forget the grace they'd been shown, if you will. And so you have Christ showing up on the scene locating and identifying with pretty much creation at its barest and, and at its most limited. And yet you see wise men from the East <laughs> um, by manifestation recognizing in this one will be, you know, you know the king that will replace all kings. Yeah, so my mind, you know, moves toward Tom Holland's dominion and uh, Nietzsche's uh, slave morality, you know, simultaneously here. So we're talking about, you know, uh, the ontological poverty of the creation insofar as it depends on the riches of the of the one who is both its creator and sustainer. Right. So there's yeah. a there's a distance there, but that distance is is equally extant for the king and the and the impoverished baby. So in other words, they're both there. But within the framework of human society, you know, uh, I think it's overstating the case to say that Jesus was, you know, just a, a poverty stricken you know, a uh, person uh, growing up in sort of peasant-like yeah. conditions. Mm -hmm. I think there's a good there's a good case that, you know, his folks are more or less what you would call middle class. <laughs> if, from, you know, if you could compare them to people today, they weren't living on the street, they weren't beggars, you know. If, if, you know, and if my understanding of, of Galilee is, is, is correct, it was a kind of a center of entrepreneurial energy, you know, and, and stuff. So there was a lot of things to say for a Galilee. Um, of course, people in Jerusalem looked down on, you know, Galileans, just like people in Washington, D.C. looked down on people from Iowa. <laughs> you know, it's that, that kind of thing. But I, I also think that with 
you know, sort of the framework, the ethical framework, you know, there's something being taught, uh, you know, that has to do with God's regard for those of low degree in a human sort of framework. And I, and, you know, that's what Tom Holland picks up in Dominion, you know, where he's, you know, kind of riffing on the fact that Western civilization wouldn't be nearly as, uh, you know, uh, good to live in if, if it hadn't been for, you know, the, you know, the Christian, um, teaching on the incarnation, et cetera. Um, but on the other side of that, you know, you've got Nietzsche who is dismissive, uh, and I don't think it's because he misses the profundity of it. I think he just, if you don't believe in God and everything is the result of sort of historical processes, uh, you know, the genealogy of morals, so to speak, there's no, in other words, morality doesn't have any transcendent basis. It's just historicism, right? Everything's got a sort of social sort of milieu in which it emerges. So, you know, what does he do? He's, he says, uh, the reason why, uh, you know, Jews came up with this is that because, you know, they were full of resentment for the power of the Roman authorities, et cetera. And because of that, you know, they were, they were levelers. They, they, they were trying to, um, you know, sort of enhance their own significance by playing down worldly power and stuff like that. Uh, that's the typical Nietzsche's, you know, Nietzschean sort of dismissal. You know, was, I think it was, um, well, someone told me about a couple of podcasts that have come up recently. I think one of them was by Tom Holland and the other by Niall Ferguson. I have to track these down. Um, in which they made the argument that the person who best exemplifies Enlightenment thought in carrying it to its logical conclusion uh, wasn't actually Nietzsche. It was the Marquis de Sade. Mm -hmm. Because his, um, his and, and he was very clear about, I mean, he was a thinker. Uh, he was very clear about what he was doing and why he was doing it. And uh, Nietzsche understood the implications of Enlightenment thought. Desaad lived them out. He was which a is kind of a chilling thought when you when you <laughs> think about it, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and it's one of those things where I don't know if uh, our culture despisers of the Christian faith have a full appreciation for what they owe the Christian faith. We've talked about this time and time again. How you know even critical theory is just a heresy. It's, it is not. It doesn't have any purchase without the Christian faith. Yeah, yeah what, and people are finally beginning to actually catch on to the fact that it's a death work, but that's <laughs> that's a bit far afield from Christmas. So, I'll leave it there. <laughs> right. Well, with that, with, with that, I mean, I th I think the other the other emphasis in a lot of, uh, especially the work of Augustine, but also the Christmas and any of its focus theologically is the contrast also that you have a radical affirmation of life and creation in the incarnation. And in a world in which life was easily dispensable and continues to be, um, where only certain kinds of lives are of any significance, right, as they can be now, I have a Planned Parenthood not far from here, um, 
you see something radical come into the affirmation of humanity and embodied humanity and family life and everything that goes with it, even though you don't see them turn into a new idol with Christ, you have them ordered the right way, but you have them you know, as I as I've said before, the in, the incarnation is not a absolute new creation ex nihilo. It's a renewal of the gift of creation, and you have that here. So this is something also that speaks volumes in a world that Christ came into, the gospel went into, especially the Hellenic world. And then, of course, the situation of Augustine, where you had kind of the barbaric and the emphasis on, you know, individual glory or the glory of Rome. Um, but in a, that was a society that would see a noble suicide, uh, sacrificing it for, you know, if, it, if its happiness became too, you know, too out of reach. They would have said that that's a fine thing. So you have this affirmation of life in the incarnation, in the Christmas message, that is not something that is just a cocktail that a bunch of Jews could have come up with to be spiteful against the surrounding culture. Um, they were a community already shaped by a commitment to preserving life. And you well, see it well, reaffirmed here. Well, related to that, you don't see anything remotely similar, as far as I know, uh, to this event you know you you brought out the contrast a minute ago glenn where we were saying this is not just the birth rebirth you know birth and re, you know death and rebirth of a of a pagan god there's something uh, uh fundamentally different because we're dealing with um being itself and we're dealing with the transcendent creator um but even birth and you know death and rebirth in pagan thought had no connection to, say, social life the way, you know, we think it worth what we're getting into right now in terms of ethics. It was just like, okay, that's what happens every year, Artemis, and not Artemis. Uh, what's the what's the goddess of uh, that goes into the underworld every Persephone. year? Persephone. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, you've got you got that happen every year, but that's not that's nothing that has nothing to do with uh, humility <laughs> has nothing to do with, you know, uh, valuing those who are powerless or what have you. That's just, you know, cycles, you know, the, the seasons, you know, changing and stuff. It's also worth noting that, well, two things, I suppose. First, it, it's an affirmation of the goodness of creation. Yeah. You know, that the physical world is itself good. Um, and, you know, Christ's redemption extends not just to humanity, but in a very real sense to all of the world, because basically with our fall, we broke it. Okay, so so you have that. Um, you, you also, though, have an elevation of humanity in a way that you don't see in any other um, in any other religion or philosophy from the ancient world that I know of. Um, because God became human, what that means is that God shares something with us, which you have to say it that way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yes, we become partakers of the divine nature and all of that, but, but God now has acquired a human nature, something 
this is again one of these paradoxes. The source of everything acquired something he didn't have before. Think about that. And what he acquired, Augustine mentions this briefly as well, what he acquired was a human nature. And what that does is it elevates human nature, it elevates humanity to a position higher than anything else out there because we are sharing something with God that nothing else does. This takes me and to— And in this sense, humanism is a Christian heresy as well. Yeah. This, this takes me to, yeah. to something that I, I, I don't think, you know, uh, you get to very naturally or easily, and that's the Space Trilogy. So in the space trilogy, uh, I'm talking about, you know, C.S. Lewis and Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength. What you have, though, in, you know, Out of the Silent Planet is uh, a trip to Malacandra where you have three, you know, sentient species, right? And they just so happen to correspond to uh, a certain kind of sort of taxonomy that we see in antiquity about you know, the thinkers, the poets, and the doers, right? <laughs> and, and, but when, when you get to, to Paralandra, which is a, a younger world than ours, so uh, Malacandra is an older world than ours, uh, Paralandra is, a, is younger, and Ransom is, is when he meets, uh, you know, the eve of that world, he's a little disappointed because uh, she's uh, human, just has a different complexion. <laughs> She's green. <laughs> and and the reason he's disappointed is he was so uh, charmed by the creatures that he met on Malacandra that he misses this sort of feature to Malacandra on Paralandra. And, and he's informed that from this point forward, because uh, God was incarnate as a, as a human being on uh the earth that uh, all uh, creatures uh, who are bearing his image will be, uh, you know, in the same form as we are. Uh, so it's an interesting sort of thing that that Lewis is doing there. You know, it ties into what you just noted, uh, Glenn, with regard to to Augustine's reflections on this. Yeah, I think that. Um, later theology, well, uh, Aquinas in particular, he'll be very careful how to put that the point Glenn just made, um, in the sense that he will he will talk about there being there's not a real relation between God and the creature, but there is a real relation between the creature and God. Now we don't use that language real relation today because we think it means that there isn't any relation, right? But there's a particular thing that. The, the philosophy and the theology used when it talked of a real relation, it meant, it, it meant in some way a constitutive relation, right? So God does not have a constitutive relation, even in union with the humanity of Christ, to where that constitutes anything of God. So God isn't augmented by it, made more. What it is, is it's all the, cre the creature, though, is dependent on that. So the creature being assumed into that kind of relation there isn't, for example, more being being added to God because God is the source of the creaturely being, right? But there is a new a new relation, um, and that relation for the human is one that gets to have communicated to it riches that it wasn't able to have before, and therefore the image of it. And so you're exactly right. Humanity has now been exalted into the inner sanctum 
of Trinitarian life. And as we're not just merely adopted sons, um, but we are, we're not simply adopted by imputation, but as, you know, Richard Hooker in, in, in my tradition would say, you're also, you, you're also become a real partaker of that. It becomes, um, sanctification is uh, being transformed um, by that very life. So this is why all the way back in the garden, you have one that doesn't want someone else to have that position and therefore needs to take them out. This is why you have one that is set at odds at eradicating the human image of God, even now to this very day as, you know, embodied creatures made in God's image, there is a war against their humanity and embodiedness. And so the message continues <laughs> and the battle. Yeah, this is... This so we is have a, our Herods today that are destro destroying yeah. the innocents. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But getting back to the serpent, though, that's that's a, a, a something I think would be worth unpacking some more in another episode sometime. It's just the malice and the, and the sort of the the reason for the malice. Um, it's not just, um, I guess, the way people generally think of it as a way to get at God. Um, but yeah. there's something else also going on. There's something that the demonic is trying to prevent um, that goes along the lines of what you just were talking about, Tom. Yeah, and that mm -hmm, that would ahead. be worth a, a very worthwhile episode to to do. We'll I'll put that on the list if we don't get to it. Well, yeah, and yeah. but thinking about that in relationship to you know this you know the Christmas at, you know Christmas stories told in Scripture, if you will, what what you have there dealing with Herod and of course the threat to worldly power is very much communicated in the rest of Scripture as Jesus entering into. The def to defeat, you know, the, the forces of darkness. And so that isn't merely just a fleshly political reaction to the threat of power, but it is also the stirrings of Satan and the recognition that defeat is coming. This is battle material, and here is one coming to battle. You know, I think C.S. Lewis was the one coming to sneak in behind enemy lines in the incarnation, if you will, not as the emperor dressed and parading, but actually in this humility. And so there, there is that dimension there as well. There's a lot going on there. I don't remember if, if Augustine spoke about much of that side of it, but I know Lewis did. Yeah, I didn't see that in any of the sermons. Yeah. Um, yeah, he, there are other themes that he talks about repeatedly. Mm -hmm. um, one of his favorite verses about the incarnation is Psalm 8511. Uh which talks about uh, truth springing up from the earth from the and earth. justice coming down from heaven. Yeah, he yeah. says, you know, Eve uh, was a descendant of Adam who was made from the earth, the dust of the earth. So truth, Jesus is the truth that springs up from the earth. He's born of Mary, but yeah. he is also divine justice coming down from heaven. And so where the two of them meet, uh, where righteousness and peace kiss each other, the next verse, where all this happens that's pointing to the incarnation. Again, a form of exegesis we're not used to, but if yeah. Jesus is right, and I assume he is, that <laughs> the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures all speak of him, that, that's how Augustine um, reaches this, uh, this conclusion about that particular verse. And that comes up 
remarkably frequently in sermon after sermon after sermon. That's the image he likes to use. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Christ, the word, uh, you know, the, the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. You have this sign and, you know, you have the signified there, but they're one. Uh, it makes no sense to think about the, the Old Testament uh, without having that in mind. Um, in other words, you know, even though, you know, what, what we have there is presented to us in the first few verses of John's gospel, what we're getting in, you know, is a window into uh, the, the sort of the, the, the ontology of Scripture. Um, so everything uh, in Scripture has to. Uh, refer to Christ uh, in some respect, um, keeping in mind all the genre and, you know, historical, you know, uh, you know, uh, things to, to, to note and all that kind of stuff. But nevertheless, uh, because reality itself uh, is ultimately uh, tied to Christ, all things, you know, came into being by him and for, and for him and everything holds together in him. So you really can't uh, hope to understand the Old Testament without keeping that all in mind. And so the, the modern approach, sort of the historical critical method, uh, is entirely, or it seems, strikes me anyway, uh, uh, maybe entirely is the wrong word, but largely depending upon a kind of modern way of thinking about history yeah and language and stuff. Yeah. Uh, there are a number of the church fathers, um, I think uh, Athanasius would be a great example, put a great deal of focus on the word as becoming incarnate. Yeah. Augustine mentions it, but again, he mentions it in part in connection with paradox, uh, because he points out that the word infant in Latin, infants, uh, literally means unable to speak. Yeah. So an infant is someone before they begin talking. And so the word becomes an infant. The word becomes one unable to speak. It's again one of these paradoxes that he likes to point out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when you get when you I think when you get a hold of Augustine's method, you know, he 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 has these sort of tropes, you know, you can kind of anticipate with him. Yeah. Yeah, but I think uh, you're, to your point, Chris, I, I think sometimes we we've lost sight of how significant the what we would call in theology the Christological hermeneutic, right? The reading of Scripture from the insights that our doctrine of Christ from Scripture supplies us. Um, we've talked about other shows how Jesus basically says, look, you are looking through the scriptures for eternal life, and they are all those that speak of me, he says, right? I mean, that could either be the most arrogant claim, or it could actually be the truth and the most humble claim, right? Correct. Because it is speaking the truth, and he's humbling himself in in doing that. Um, and But you, you, you also have with the modern critical approaches, because there is a kind of what, you know, I would say a detached relationship to the events, at least how they perceive them, um, that there, that 
they're coming at it a fundamentally opposite direction as the classic historic church, which is participant in those events. They are a sharer in the very life that is the thread that holds all that together. So there is a sacramental way in which when I read the Old Testament as a Christian, it's speaking to me and I'm speaking to it. Just like in our sacraments, the real presence of Christ and his completed work has is made manifest in the means of grace. And so when you relate to scripture that way, apart from re- reading it and being a part of, of the meaning context supplied by the incarnation, you really are stuck with whose opinion best matches whatever particular historical detail they can put the emphasis on in, in reading a text. Yeah, I had a kind of curious experience here last week. I shared a a photograph of a pulpit that I designed uh, that was actually built for the last church I served. And I noted that in the Reformed tradition that uh, the pulpit uh, is the throne of the word. And I actually had some really odd responses to that. The, there was one person that seemed to think that this was idolatrous, <laughs> that, um, <laughs> you know, don't we, as uh, least Reformed believers, maintain that scriptures are our rule? In other words, they govern us, <laughs> you know. So at, just even at that level, we should be able to say, okay, I get the point, uh, I think that I think that some of the people who responded really don't have an ability to think about an object as bearing meaning. Just generally speaking, uh, they assume that if yeah. something bears meaning and it's objective in some sense, that it that it's an idol. Um, like my wedding yeah. ring would be an idol, or the American flag would be an idol, or something yeah. like that. You know, because it's, it bears it, meaning. Yeah. It, it, it somehow, if you celebrate, you know, uh, Christmas using cultural elements that didn't come purely straight directly from heaven, like the manna, you've somehow, you're you're somehow, you know, living and doing practicing paganism. I mean, this is this oppositional thinking. I think is the very thing that the church spent its earliest parts trying to address when it carved out its doctrine of God and creation from its rich reading of the scripture. And I mean, scripture everywhere says, until we've brought all things into subjection to him. Does that mean, what does that mean? It means all things. It means all things come from him, are sustained through him, and find their meaning and telos, their purpose in him. So as he illumines these things and they're weaned off of their idolatrous connections, and our loves are purified, these are to be received with thanksgiving and grace and celebrated, participated in, found joy in. And so the fact that God's creation, trees and wood, by God's creatures become carved in such a way that they want to exhibit something that they are free to do to point to the centrality of the word— as long as you're not bowing, bowing down and worshiping that wood, there is no competition going on there. <laughs> well, the weird thing, the reason that this came to mind is your, your comment about sort of the uh, sacramental hearing or the reading of the word. In other words, yeah. this is something Hans Borsma gets into in one of his books. I can't remember the title of it. But uh, yeah. essentially what, you're, which, what you know, is being expressed is that Christ is communicated through the word. 
um, there is a throne in heaven, we would say, right? Uh, and that this particular throne, yeah. in some sense, is a, a corresponds to that throne, and, and that's all that's being said. <laughs> in other words, that that there is yeah. a God who who governs us and rules us, and this is a record of His work and His de- and His word and His decrees, and we read them, and uh, we we re- we receive the the readings. Uh, as what they are, the word of God, and we and we submit. <laughs> so I, it's just the weirdest thing that anybody would think that you know, it is. Uh, holding it is. the Bible up Glenn, as authoritative think, would be idolatrous. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think Glenn had made the point before, and and we've talked about it before, is that look, the very elements that are used by Christ to to make his presence known to us in the church, besides the written word, which is a tangible, touchable, creaturely reality grounded in the eternal word, but also bread and wine, which are not, don't simply spring from the earth, as Augustine would say. They're things that human beings have to pound out and bake and develop or um, cultivate in terms of wine and bring it to a certain thing. There's human contribution. I remember Nicholas Lash once saying, why is it that so many Christians think that if a human doesn't, it isn't part of creation or it's it's all oppositional? No. God takes the things we make and and is happy to endow us with abilities for, of our, our ability to discern something of the law goy, you know, that is in creation and to develop it and cultivate it and everything else. Yeah, it needs redemption, but it doesn't make everything about it needing to be ruined because Christ was ruined on our behalf to take care of that. <laughs> and so it can be renewed. <laughs> yeah, it, it, uh, it, our language works against us here because we always distinguish natural and artificial. Yeah. As if na- artificial is not part of nature. Nature. <laughs> um, there, there's a, a joke about uh, scientists who have finally figured out how how to make everything in the universe and all that and they decide they don't need god so they they go to meet god and they say sorry we don't need you anymore uh we can do anything you can do and god says well can you make man of the dust of the earth and they say absolutely he says go ahead and they reach down and they get a handful of dust and god says wait a minute get your own dust you know ultimately everything derives from what god's created it's all you know in a very real sense it's all part of nature yeah right Right. yeah god god is the creator of everything and even everything we do the only part that isn't a part of that is the sin. Sin is what we ultimately create ourselves ex nihilo, if you will. And even that's not true because it is contingent upon the goodness of, of creation, right? It's a cancer within a good cell. Um, but that's the, part we br- that's the part we bring to it that isn't part of what God has brought to it. But in terms of every creature, well, uh, James says it best, you know, that the father of lights is the source of every good and perfect gift that we partake of. And good and perfect here is not talking about it just being purely sanctified. It's talking about it owes itself to the source that is good and perfect, and therefore it's to be oriented to him the right way. And when it is, 
it definitely exhibits a much richer fullness and manifests a certain glory in itself. But even in its broken and imperfect forms, there is still something that, that radiates the goodness of the Creator. That's why we're held accountable. And, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, to sit here and say everything we do has to be left out of the picture, or you know, is... Uh, you know, I think uh, uh, one of the theologians said of, of Howard Yoder, the, the Mennonites, where he goes, they just simply hate creation. <laughs> and that may have been unfair, but... <laughs> well, thinking of Yoder, there you know, was it's, a certain it's kind worth- of thing that he was interested in that maybe uh, was a problem. Well, it was a problem. <laughs> Won't get into that. One of the things yeah, I, wanted, yeah. I would like to talk yeah. about here, here a little bit, Glenn, is... Um, uh, so how many Christmas sermons were there? Do you, did you remember, uh, do you have a, like an estimate? Uh, oh gosh. Um, I think, I think there was something like 12 or 13. Yeah. Okay. Um, I can provide, I'll, I'll provide a link in the notes where people can go read them. Um, uh, it turns out they're available through Google books. So, gotcha. gotcha. um, yeah. Now, th- there are certain things in there that as Reformed Protestants, we might find a little bit um, not to our liking. Uh, he does, uh, in a number of the sermons, he seems to have been preaching them primarily to monks and nuns. So he is uh, focused on the the spiritual superiority of virginity over married life. Says married life's okay, but it's much better not to be married. Um, he has uh, he has the idea that people in his day had that Mary remained intact, as he puts it, um, which is what they mean by ever virgin. Now, yeah. the problem with that one is that their idea of virginity is what I would describe as crassly physical, uh, such that if Jesus were born in the normal way, she would have lost her virginity because she would no longer be intact. And the way this is explained is it was a miraculous birth. Uh, One analogy is Jesus passed out of Mary the way light passes out of a crystal. Um, (laughs) I would argue that that's docetism, that that's arguing that Jesus didn't have a real body, but somehow they didn't put that together. (laughs) Um, So there are things like that that we're going to be disagreeing with. But yeah. there's um, there's a lot of really, I think, fruitful ideas that are expressed in these that are really worth, like said earlier, pondering. Yeah. Well, it's interesting how our day, uh, we in our day, we've seen a return to uh, a kind of um, life without the benefits of marriage. Uh, it's not. Um, it's it's not. Uh, Virginity, you know, that we're talking about is just um, a rejection of marriage uh, as such, as something that is something that is to aspire to. Um, so we, we see a lot of singleness in the church today. Uh, and, uh, and there's a kind of, uh, well, there's an attempt to spiritualize it. Uh, but it's taking a new, a sort of a, a very different uh, form than what we saw, you know, in antiquity uh, or in the first century. Anything else there, Glenn, that maybe uh, we want to sort of think about with relationship to Augustine and the sermons? 
Yeah, uh, I'm scanning down my notes here. I think we've hit most of the main themes. Um, the one thing I would note is is one thing that um, that is connected to what Tom mentioned earlier. Um, we, I think sometimes, and actually it's been a theme through a lot of what we've been saying here. Um, when you take a look at Revelation 4 or Isaiah 6, where you enter into the throne room of heaven, uh, what you see are these four living creatures who are constantly saying, holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. Now, R.C. Sproul is really good on this. The triple repetition, um, it, it means it's raising God to the, the holiness to the highest level when you're approaching God um, or when you're thinking about God. What I find interesting is that the creatures closest to God, literally, uh, are these four living creatures that surround the throne. And the thing that they are overwhelmed by is God's holiness. Now, when we think of holiness, we usually think of it in terms of, of uh, purity or um, you know, moral goodness or something along those lines. I think that's the most common idea of what holiness points to. But the word itself refers to something that is set apart, something that is different, something that is distinguished from everything else. So the thing that's interesting is that the creatures closest to God, the thing they are overwhelmed by is God's difference, that yeah. he is unlike anything else. Um, and again, it's pointing to transcendence. It's pointing to the fact that we have more in common apart from Christ with those four living creatures than we have with God himself. Yeah, We tend to divide things between the physical, the concrete, uh, the material and the spiritual. And we lump God, the angels, and all of those yeah. things into the spiritual. Yeah. That's a mistake. Yeah. It's a category yeah. error. Absolutely. We have more in common with the, quote, spiritual, with the unseen realm, than we do with God, apart from the incarnation, which is another thing that makes the incarnation so utterly remarkable. Yeah. And you, you have the angels coming to announce and celebrating glory to God in the highest, right? And peace to the you know, people on earth. Um, in this city, you know, royalty is coming, and this is the salvation we have all also been waiting for and rejoicing. I mean, all of, you know, if you will, all of heaven is rejoicing. The, those creatures have a lot at stake in our redemption. <laughs> As a matter of fact, one day we shall judge angels if, if those texts are, are, are read in, in their classic way. So there is, uh, there is profundity there. The, those that we, we think closest to God, is it, yet God has come in, in many ways closest to us um, as image bearers. And I think, I think that's the other thing. It's the, the bringing of God's glory into not simply us into the inner sanctum of God's life, but as image bearers are being able to be in union with that and the presence of God to fill us as his people, as the analogy is his temple, um, which, which, you know, is his dwelling place. Um, he, is, he has come to make us a city, if you will, of his abode with himself as the king. So the, the imagery is profound on every level, political, prophetic, religious, um, you know, spiritual. And it, 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 they didn't miss a lot of that. And sometimes I think we do because we're removed from a lot of those things, um, politics in relationship to, you know, kingdoms, for example. 
Um, and so it is important to read earlier theologians like Augustine, who had to wrestle with a changing world already removed from the setting in which the original events took place in the Bible. Well, we're just about out of time here. If I may, I want to, I want to read this idea of paradox doesn't end with the church fathers. I'd, le I'd like to read one more as sort of my closing comment here. This comes from Thomas Watson. He was poor that he might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we might lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. That the ancient of days should be born, that he who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle, that he who rules the stars should suck the breast, that a virgin should conceive, that Christ should be made of a woman, of, and of that woman which himself made, that the branch should bear the vine, that the mother should be younger than the child she bore, and the child in the womb bigger than the mother, that the human nature should not be God, yet one with God. This was not only amazing, but miraculous. Yeah, there's in that a delight in the paradoxes. This is a sort of an entering into and a wonder, a wonderment, you could say. I, I don't know yeah. if you can have a genuine worship uh, without a sense of wonder. And I think that, you know, is what they're expressing here with, through these paradoxes. You want to think you want to say there, Tom, as we, as we wrap up? Yeah, I think theologians over and over again who said this is a teaching and a reality to which the church probably does better to, to wonder and adore than, than comment and try to flatten in, right. in too familiar ways. Right. And it is that wonderment, I think, that stirs a Christian imagination to start to wonder at the whole of it in light of what is revealed in Christ. And so Christ, the incarnation, is the meaning of all things, ultimately, and the center reference point of all history. And so um, not only are we given life and, and, and hope in him um, and eternal life, but also we have a purpose to orient our creatureliness in a way that other things don't become gods in the substitute of this wonderful one. Good stuff, good stuff. Well, anyway, um, why don't we call it a wrap? Thank you for your attention and getting all the way to the end of this episode of the Theology Podcast. Uh, we don't take you for granted at all. Uh, we do appreciate your interest in what we do. And uh, we're especially grateful for all the folks who support us on Patreon. And uh, we've got a growing number of those folks. And if you'd like to join that elect band, you can do so. Just go to the link in the show notes and follow the link to the Patreon page, and you'll be given some choices uh, when it comes to how to support us. Another thing we'd like you to know is that, you know, we're starting to ramp things up here for our big trip to the United Kingdom. We're going to be in Oxford uh, May 22nd through 29th, and we're going to be uh, looking for folks to help us out with that. And if you'd like to learn more about how to help and what we're up to, uh, we'll be letting folks know more about that uh, right after Christmas. Uh, we know at this time of year, everybody's wrapped up with Christmas stuff and family stuff. But when things settle down a little bit, uh, we'll be you know, making some announcements and providing ways for folks to learn about what we're up to and, and help. Anyway, uh, just keep your eyes open for that. 
And I guess that's it for now. Thanks a lot, and bye-bye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. (laughs) The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy the book by Jason Cherry, The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, available on Amazon. Amazon.